We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. So I'd ask you to stand as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. Colossians three fifteen through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God's word for God's people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. This morning as we gather, we recognize that uh, what is happening here this morning is not a work of our own, but it is because of that incredible, miraculous work that you have accomplished in our lives. How you, through your own choice and in your own power, have, have, have awakened dead hearts to behold you, to recognize the depths of our sin and our brokenness and our need of a Savior, and to see in the person of Jesus the only one who could pay for our sins. And so we gather as a people who were in great need, and our greatest need has been met by you, by nothing that we could do on our own. And so we gather in thankfulness because of that reality. Um, as we look now to your word, as you have not abandoned us just to figure things out, but you have given us instruction and a guide on how we should live and how we can know and serve you more, I just pray that your word would do its work in us, that it would shape us, that it would challenge us, that it would change us. I pray that we would be willing to allow your spirit to move and to submit our lives underneath your word, not to allow us to stand in judgment over it. So we, as a people who recognize your lordship and your, your, your rule and your reign in our own hearts and lives, I just pray that you would allow us this morning to see you more clearly and to uh, allow your spirit to do that work in us, to shape us and change us and make all of us more like Christ and to be the people that you have saved us to be. And so we commit this time to you with thankful hearts. And we pray this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. You know, there are, there are many things in life that I think we all know that we should do, but yet executing upon them is something we are not always successful at, right? Like you could think of eating healthy, for instance. We all know that we should probably eat better, um, that we should uh, get the right amount of fruits and vegetables and um, kind of balance out things on that pyramid rather than invert that thing, right? Um, but yet... It's something that's oftentimes hard to carry through with. You may be doing good for a few days, and then all of a sudden your kids bring home 12 pounds of candy on Halloween, and so you find yourself sitting around eating uh, 15 Snicker bars one night. But they're the little ones, so they don't really count, right? So, uh, but am I, am I the only one? Um, other things like, we, we all know we should spend less time on our phones. We all know it's not good for us. It's not healthy. It's not a good example to our kids. And yet, it's so easy after a long day just to 
to read the news feed or to, to get lost in the, the, the web of, of funny memes just to, to kind of escape. We all, we all know that. We all get trapped in it. We all know that we should probably slow down a little bit and pay attention more to the speed limits, right? But man, driving 40 on horse tooth sometimes just feels so slow. And then, uh, you know, maybe we, should, we, we, we know that we should probably get up a little earlier in the morning. We should uh, be, be more productive um, get up and, and, and make, make our day count. And yet, on a cold and dark morning, when the sun hasn't quite come up, it's just so easy to just stay in bed a little bit longer, right? We all know what we should do, and yet it's, it's hard to actually follow through with those things. And similarly, there are, there are many Christian virtues that, that we know that we should possess as followers of Christ. And yet the struggle to consistently practice them is real. Take Thanksgiving, for instance. To be thankful, we, we just celebrated a holiday that gives us a clear opportunity to remind ourselves to, to give thanks. And maybe some of you gathered around the table with family or friends and, and you took a moment to practice that, to share with each other what you were thankful for. Maybe that was a helpful practice, but for how many of us is that maybe a once a year type of thing? How many of us can, can honestly say that we are a thankful people. But we know that we should be, right? If you've read your Bible, you realize the Bible is littered with commands to be thankful. Uh, you look at the Psalms and you, and you read, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Psalm 95, Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. In First Chronicles, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Paul to the Thessalonians says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. And in Philippians it says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We know that we are, we are called to be thankful, to, 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 to exhibit thankfulness in all aspects of our lives, and yet... In the, in, in the real-life rhythms of life, how many times are we actually prone to neglect that? And, and more importantly, how do we seek to cultivate a heart of thankfulness in, in, a, in a culture that is marked so much by criticism, right? Is not the air, that the air that we breathe of just everybody criticizing one another or, or nitpicking or, or pointing out the flaws and everything else? You see this a lot in like athletics and professional sports. Somebody could be killing it, having a, having a great season, and they make that one uh, blaring mistake, and, and the media and the fan base just, just tears them apart and criticizes them. How many times in our lives can we focus on what we don't have, what we're missing out on, that actually what we cultivate far more is an attitude of complaint, of discontentment, of, of, of not recognizing what we've been given? But what is it that makes a thankful people? Is it, is it just kind of good old-fashioned discipline? Like, we just got to choose to do it. Just, just be thankful. Just kind of uh, make it happen. And sometimes th th there is a sense of, of, of calling of obedience in that. But I believe that this text here helps us to see in a small way what it takes to actually cultivate and develop thankfulness in us. And so as we look and dive into this short passage this morning, we have to recognize where this is at. 
Um, Paul writes to this church in the city of Colossae, a, a, a people that he maybe hadn't even met, but he has this deep concern for them. And, and, and he, he writes to them and, and, and calls them to continue to embrace and to grow into their newfound identity in Christ. But he's concerned for them. He's concerned that maybe they're being led by kind of competing philosophies and new ideas that have been brought in. That maybe, you know, this whole Jesus idea was kind of a good place to start, but we, we need to, to develop some other uh, practices and, 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 and drift off into some other things. And so for Paul, he, in chapter 2, gives them these, these clear warnings. Not to abandon their commitment to Christ, but to actually grow deeper into Him. And so in, in chapter 3, he starts and just says, Seek Christ, seek the things that are above. And he calls them to strive to live differently in light of the new identity that they have been given in Jesus. He's, he's invited them to put to death aspects of the old life and to now put on new characteristics, new rhythms that should characterize them as followers of Jesus. And here in these final words, he then invites us to consider how, how we can have a, a new mindset, kind of a, a, a new shaping influences. And he says that ultimately these things will usher forth and result in an attitude and a heart of thankfulness. And so we're just going to follow the text very clearly here. In verses 15, 16, 17, there are these, these clear statements. And what we will notice is that on each of these verses attached to them is this aspect of thankfulness or gratitude that is included here. And we'll see how, how these things actually help to shape a people into a heart of thankfulness. So let's start in verse 15. Uh, he, he, he invites us, first of all, with this command, and, and he invites us to, to, to this. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So as we, as we try to unpack this, we have to ask, first of all, what is this peace, that, this peace of Christ that, he's, that he mentions? And secondly, how does it function? So, so first of all, what is this peace that he speaks of? I, I don't think he's merely speaking of just kind of this internal sense of peace or this, this calm that we have. Certainly, there's an aspect of that that God provides. But I think he's specifically referring to the peace which Christ brings through the unifying of his people together through the gospel. And I think he, he, he clarifies this when he says, to which indeed you were called in one body. He's saying you were called into this peace. You were invited into this peace with one another. You were saved to this end. In his letter to the Ephesians, he makes, makes this very clear. In chapter 2, when he says of Jesus, he says, he is our peace. And he made us one. He removed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And he, he, he killed the hostility that stood between them. And he created in himself this one new man. And so he's basically saying Christ died to bring peace amongst you. So let the reality of what Christ has done in your own heart, in restoring you into a relationship with him, and into uniting you with each other, let that be the decisive way in which you relate to one another. So how does it then function? The word that he says here for rule is, is not the rule of a king or a governor, but it's actually the, the, the rule of, of one who decides over like a, a competition. One who determines who gets and receives the prize. 
a umpire of sorts, a arbiter, one who gets to determine who is correct. He's saying, allow what Christ has accomplished to be the referee over your heart in your relationships. See what he's saying? Um, in the last couple of years, I've gotten into uh, uh, playing the game of pickleball. Uh, if you don't know pickleball, it's kind of uh, if, if ping pong and tennis had a baby, you'd have pickleball. And so uh, it's, uh, it's kind of an old person's game typically. And so as I'm getting older, I figure I might as well join with uh, the trajectory of where I'm going. But uh, it's a great game. But what's interesting about pickleball, and much like tennis, there's, there's an aspect of honor in it, in which you call your own lines. So when somebody hits a ball over onto my side of the court, I actually deter, have, to, have to call whether that ball is in or out. And so, as you can imagine, in a, in a tight game, sometimes our own bias internally of what we desire it to be can maybe cloud our vision of whether it was actually on the line or just outside of the line. And so what's helpful in any game like that, is to have a third person, a referee, an umpire who actually is watching, who gets to determine and say, no, that was in or that was out. And this is the sense of what he's saying and how the peace of Christ should function over our hearts, over our relationships and how we interact with each other. To say, when, when we're in conflict with one another or debating something with each other, that the peace of Christ is that which, which guards our heart, which rules and says, no, that's out of bounds. You're actually operating from your own self-interest and not for the interest of another. Not in recognition of what Christ has actually accomplished and what he desires to cultivate in your relationship. And so he's encouraging us that in our lives together, the peace of Christ should be the goal. Whatever is necessary to restore or to maintain that peace is what he's inviting us to allow to be the determining factor in how we relate to one another. We have to realize that in the pursuit of peace, that doesn't mean that, that, that there's just passivity. Just kind of ignoring things, but actually to maintain peace, sometimes and very oftentimes, conflict may be necessary. It may be necessary to step into that conflict and actually seek the restoration and reconciliation of the relationship. But the question ultimately becomes, what is governing our motives and the way in which we seek to engage in that conflict? Maybe practically speaking, is there somebody in your life that you actually have been at odds with, that you've had conflict with, that you know right now your relationship is strained? Maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's in, with a roommate, maybe it's with another person in this room. And the question ultimately is, what have you been allowing to be the umpire in the way that you engage with that conflict? Have you allowed your hurt to be the referee? To determine what you will and will not do. What you will and will not allow from that relationship. The ability to, to harbor that hurt against them. Is that controlling and being the umpire? Or is, as Paul says, the peace of Christ standing as the referee to say what is in and what is out of bounds? And Maybe some of us need to take that step to press into that. To recognize what has been the controlling and deciding factor in our relationships. But the call here is to allow the peace of Christ, what Christ has accomplished for us. When Christ stepped towards us in our hostility towards him and, and, and broke down 
and, 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 and broke through that, that, that barrier to unite us to himself, to bring true reconciliation between us and God, he offers that same opportunity for us in our relationships with others. So is the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts and in the ways we relate and, and, and dwell with one another? Notice at verse 15 how it ends. With this final little command, he says, and be thankful. It, it could feel kind of random as, as you read this, right? Like kind of just an unexpected, detached kind of add-on. Oh yeah, and, and give thanks. But I think the reason that Paul includes it here is, is, is because he recognizes that as we embrace the peace of Christ in our lives and in our relationships, something has happened that we, that we cannot accomplish on our own, but it is something which God actually does in us. And the only natural response to that is to, to, to recognize and to give thanks to him in light of that. And we'll come back to this idea because he keeps bringing it up. But he moves on in verse 16 and he invites us to this second thing. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This phrase, the word of Christ, is only used here. And it could be a reference to kind of Scripture in general, the Bible, you know, generally, the Word of God. But I think he's speaking specifically of something uh, more precise. I believe that he's focusing particularly on the message about Jesus, the gospel, the good news of what God has done through the person and work of Jesus. And certainly this is the central and overarching story of the Bible. It's God's plan of redemption. From the very beginning, from the fall in the garden all the way to the city of Revelation, it's what God has been doing to redeem and restore sinners to himself. And he does it through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so he's saying to them, he says, inviting us all to let this story, this narrative, be the story that lives inside of us, that shapes us that determines how we view our lives. When he says to let it dwell richly, he says, says in abundance, it is to be that which fills us. And just think about when, when, when someone has something dwelling in them richly and in abundance, what ultimately happens? That it spills out, it breaks forth. It, it comes out of them. I think of uh, some of the classic uh, movies that maybe you've watched over and over again. And uh, some of those movies that, that are so quotable. You know, maybe you've met a, a, a guy who now is maybe in his mid to late 30s who watched Dumb and Dumber one too many times, right? Who every time he goes to a, to a gas station can't help but say, big gulps, huh? All right, see you later. Or when on a cold winter night to, to say, You've had two pair of gloves this whole time? Yeah, it's the Rockies. You know, you, you, maybe you've known that guy, or, you know, if you were like me, it was Napoleon Dynamite for you. Um, that great classic movie. And every time I'm playing football with my boys, I can't help but say, how much you want to bet I can throw this football over the mountains. Right? Right? Whatever the movie is, maybe it's Star Wars, maybe it's something else. I don't know what it was. It's for ladies. I don't know if ladies quote movies or not, but uh, I asked my wife. She's like, I don't know. Um, but we've all maybe, maybe 
had those things that, that come out, those stories that, 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 that we listen to, that we hear, that, that actually begin to come out of us. And the question is, does the gospel so permeate our lives? Do we know it so well that you become fluent in speaking it? In speaking the gospel, in speaking and, and, and quoting the, the glories of what Christ has accomplished for us, does the word of Christ dwell in us richly that it overflows in our lives? Paul tells us that when the word of Christ dwells in us, something naturally will happen. It will extend out into our relationships. Namely, he says that we will teach and admonish one another. Notice that this isn't just preaching, this isn't just listening to sermons, but this is the activity of one to another in the body of Christ. Teaching obviously involves positive instruction and gospel truth of, of growing and helping each other understand more fully the, the, the benefits of the gospel that are attained to us that should shape how we live. And this idea of admonishing is more specifically focused on correction or a, a warning of sorts. Sounds a lot like what we often describe as discipling relationships, right? With one another. You see, when the gospel overwhelms us and we allow it to permeate into all areas of our lives and to take over and to dwell within us, to become our identity, then that should bring about an, an outward-oriented investment in others to help to see them grow to see them be changed. It should, it should provide us an opportunity where we invite others to help bring correction into our own lives, to see the blind spots in our lives so that we can together not just criticize and point out and judge one another, but so that we can grow more into the people that God has saved us to be. But notice what he, how he says we should do this. He says that, that this teaching and admonishing should be done in all wisdom. And I believe he includes that, that little statement because it requires wisdom to know what and specifically how to actually teach and admonish one another. You know, sometimes we can take a, a passage like this and we can kind of use it to justify kind of the idea of just kind of throwing scripture bombs at each other. You know, you hear someone just kind of struggling in life and, 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 and battling something and, and, and kind of down and you just kind of come along and say, hey, the Bible says to, you know, rejoice always. So there you go. Just, you know, just get after it. Rejoice. Um, but the idea of, of, of teaching and admonishing and wisdom with one another is the idea that we take the time to, to speak the truth of the gospel in a way that recognizes where someone at, what they're going through, and to, and to help them to see truth. This is why we need context for this to happen. This is why our life groups, I think, are, are such an important context to where we begin to cultivate these kind of relationships where we can share truth with one another, where we can have opportunity to admonish one another. And even more specifically, even from life group, is to have maybe an, an, an enter into a journey group context with just a few others that, that we can be very, very honest and real with. Do you have other believers who you have invited into your life to speak truth and correction for your spiritual good? Or are you just good on your own? You'll kind of figure it out. All of this is that, that when we are a people who is allowing the gospel, the word of Christ to dwell in us, it will break forth in, in, the, in the way that our relationships are shaped with one another to bring teaching 
to bring admonishing and correction where it's needed. That's something that's freely offered and freely received, and it's rooted in the context of a gospel community, a culture shaped by the gospel. But he tells us also something else that should characterize a people who are allowing the word of Christ to dwell in them. Namely, he says that it will, they will break forth in singing, through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, some have tried to make a big distinction between these three categories. I'm not sure if there is one. Certainly, the Psalms is probably a reference to the, the ancient Psalms of Israel, and these other categories are more kind of modern developments within the Christian community. But ultimately, what he's saying is this. He's saying that the, the musical worship of the church is given to us as a means by which we are all both instructed in the gospel and also to which and through which we respond to the gospel. Now let's just be honest, there's a, there's a lot of opinions on what makes good worship music in the church, right? And even across this room, there's probably a, a hundred different opinions on that. For some people, it hinges on maybe excellent, skilled musical performance in, in leading worship. We need, we need to have excellency in uh, leading of worship. For others, it's more about the atmosphere and, and kind of the authentic passion that's, that's created in the worship experience. And for others, maybe it's a lyrical precision and a a rich truth of the songs that we sing. The reality is that that all of those probably have some truth that, that should be present and should be cultivated in our worship. But the one thing that we often kind of drift into is merely focusing on what is oftentimes our own personal preference, what we resonate with, what appeals to me. But the one criteria that Paul highlights here, and the criteria that we must recognize is that the musical worship of the church is intended to be that through which we sing to one another and more fully allow the word of Christ to dwell in all of us. And so I think that at the very least means this, that we should be far less concerned about cultivating a personal worship experience and far more interested in cultivating a corporate gospel confession. And so, just practically here, like, should mean just like, maybe a couple things. One, that we should, we should sing songs that are true. That are true about God, that, about who He is. His character. And that furthermore, allow us to rehearse the gospel narrative regularly. We talk about this often, how, how Cole and the others oftentimes shape kind of the worship set to guide us through this narrative of creation, fall, and redemption, restoration is to be a pattern of the church to, to rehearse and, and, and allow the word of Christ, the message of what he has done, to dwell in us. And in our singing, we are declaring that to one another. And secondly, I think practically it means that we want to design things to encourage and highlight the voice and the presence of the corporate body over a stage performance. So practically, one of the things we do here is we, we leave the lights on in the, in the building when we sing. And I have nothing against churches that, that turn them off and it's dark and there's trying to capture an atmosphere of sorts. But I think the more that we, we, we shine and spotlight the stage, the more we minimize what God is doing in the corporate singing of God's people. And so we want to we turn the lights on. We want to see each other sing. We want to enter into this together. This is what it was made for, is, is, is that we sing to each other. 
And we instruct each other as we do that. So let me just encourage you, whether, whether you love worship here, or you struggle with whatever, or you, know, you're, you have different ideas, might I just encourage you maybe to think a little bit less about your preferences and more about the opportunity of the corporate gathering to instruct and serve one another. And secondly, what I would encourage you is to participate, to sing, to enter into this together, to lift your voice. And let me tell you, I am the guy that is probably <laughs> like least qualified to, to, to say that to you. Because singing, singing together in public has not historically been my thing. If you know me, it's, it's oftentimes a joke with my close friends of, of, how, of how little I actually appreciate music. Going to a concert isn't something that I love, even they're laughing at me. It, it, it's true. I'm kind of weird like this. Um, it, it's not something I, I, I love. It's not something I value. not something I, I necessarily pursue. And I uh, asked my wife, I, there's a good chance that I am the least gifted musically in this entire room. So singing next to somebody actually creates a pretty high anxiety for me. I don't really want anybody hearing, hearing me sing. But God has, been, has done a work in me to allow me to grow to love the singing of God's people together. And I've been encouraged by others who I can hear singing. I'm like, ah, they're not that good either. But they're singing to Jesus. <laughs> and when you hear someone singing to Jesus, regardless of what other people think of them, it's a beautiful thing. So can I invite you to participate in the singing of God's people? It's not about you. It's not about what you like. We're not here to worship you. We're here to worship God. And we do that as we join our voices together, whether they're beautiful and great or whether they're a little rough. Parents, fathers, mothers, your kids need to see you worshiping. They need to watch you give recognition to God and his supremacy in your life. That's why we love having the kids in here even when we sing. It's a, it's a beautiful thing and something that we are invited to do. And it's a, it's a manifestation of the word of Christ dwelling in a people. will naturally break forth in singing. But notice again how Paul tacks on this idea of thankfulness to the end of this verse. And, and the reality is this. He says that when the gospel dwells in us, and we break forth in singing together. The necessary companion to that is thankfulness in our hearts to God. So we sing with thankfulness. I think it's impossible to sing of the glories of the gospel in an authentic way without thankfulness taking over within us. So, the third invitation of this passage is here in verse 17. And he says this, Do everything in the name of Christ. He says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I thought, I thought yesterday in my office, as I was just, just looking over this, like, where do I even begin to unpack this massive call? Um, how do I try to apply this in, in, a, in any meaningful way here at the end of this sermon? I just began to, to, to think about what Paul is doing here. And I, I think this does function in this section as kind of a conclusion in which he is reminding us to whom we belong. You see, at the beginning of chapter 3, in, in verse 3, he, he declared this. He said, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he's calling us to remember that to be united to Christ means that we joyfully give up our claim to live life on our terms. 
Maybe you're here and you've been wrestling with that, that idea. Maybe you have been drawn to this Jesus figure, to the church and this, this, this community, but there is a battle within you that if you, if you give your life to him, if you, if you claim his salvation that's offered to you, then maybe you'll have to give up a little bit in your own life. And you, and you want to hold on to that. Maybe that struggle is there. I think Paul is, is reminding us that to follow Jesus is this all-encompassing thing. It's to relinquish the control to determine who gets to, to, to call the shots in your life. But this is not offered as a burden, but as an awesome freedom. But he does say that when we receive Christ, that everything now takes on a different orientation. Previously, what do we do? We do everything on our, on our own terms, for our own name. But now, we do it as representing Christ. And so, it's hard to really apply this because this isn't necessarily initially a, a command for a certain action, but rather this is a reminder of a completely different alignment of our motives and, of, and the vision that we have for our lives. And it's all-inclusive, right? Whatever you do, in word or deed, this means that no part of your life remains outside of Jesus' jurisdiction. Everything you do, you now do oriented towards Him. How you go to work, how you pursue your hobbies, how you use your money, how you go to school, how you parent, how you shovel your driveway, how you vote, how you schedule your time, everything is now done for Him and oriented towards his purposes. This is the invitation that we're offered. But notice again, we see it one more time, what he adds to the end of this command. What does he say? It says, giving thanks to God through Christ. Thankfulness to God is the response of one who recognizes the joy found in being rescued from the idolatry of ourselves and being given a greater affection in Christ. The question is, will we recognize it? Will we open our eyes and see it? To see that we have every reason to be thankful. In uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul writes of those who, who suppress the knowledge of God. And this is what it says of them. It says that although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. And it says, or give Him thanks. They refused to give thanks to Him. I love this, uh, this quote by G.K. Chesterton. It says this, it says, The worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. The worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. And I think on the flip side, the worst moment for a Christian is when they know the God that they can thank, but they fail to recognize his gifts. So the lingering question is, why does Paul tag thankfulness onto each of these commands over and over again. I believe it's because a people who consistently recognize the glorious grace and the goodness of God don't have to work very hard at being thankful. It will simply happen to them. John Piper wrote this. He said, Genuine thankfulness 
is an act of the heart's affections, not an act of the lips' muscles. It is not willed, but awakened. It is not a decision of the will, but a reflex of the heart. It happens to us. And if gratitude is experienced as a burden, you do not have true gratitude. I think that's true. Just think of a a young boy on Christmas morning when he opens up that package that he discovers to be the socks that his grandma sent him. That child may say thank you when prompted by his parents as kind of the appropriate act for the moment. But when what that boy really wanted was the brand new Lego set, I don't believe he possesses true thankfulness for the socks. And so if we want to create a truly thankful people, we must root ourselves in the source of our gratitude, which is what Paul has displayed for us. As we let the peace of Christ, what he has accomplished in the reconciliation of dead enemies into a relationship with Christ, as we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, as we continue to let the word of Christ dwell in us, to teach and admonish each other in the glories of the gospel, and ultimately as we remember and recognize to do everything for the name of Christ. So church, let us heed these commands and let us let them do their work in us. And what will be the fruit is a truly, consistently thankful people. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this brief passage that reminds us of how much we've been given. I pray that you would cultivate in us a desire to allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts, to be the referee in our relationships. Pray that the word of Christ, the message of your glorious gospel would dwell in us, that it would just dwell so richly that it just comes out of us in our relationships, in our conversations. And ultimately, let us be a people who recognizes that our life is not our own, But everything that we do, whether in word or deed, we do everything for your name and for your glory. So empower us to this end. And in so doing, let us cultivate a heart of genuine thankfulness for how much we have been given. And we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.